Blog Talk Radio. Intelligence, 
but what people like Ben and those of his ilk are doing is really remarkable. That's that's the big picture. Yeah. And, um, and and so, I mean, so for, for those in our audience that may not know the difference, I mean, artificial intelligence, obviously, you know, you're just building a system that has some intelligence and maybe a uh, narrow capacity, like a, an AI could be the world's best chess player, as it is. Um, you know, or, or it might be one for uh, routing calls or something like that. But Even Google can be defined as that. Exactly. It is exactly that. Um, but what he is trying to do with, with uh, in, in this research of artificial general intelligence is to build a brain uh, or an artificial brain, and uh, he's and it's to me that's an exciting field. It's and uh, um, he, you know one of the things he's experimenting with is uh, artificial brains within artificial worlds, second life, and things like that. Although Ben and I love to get into arguments about, you know, I, I love the fact that Second Life exists. I'm thrilled that there are people who are doing it, but I'd love to know, who are these people who have time for it? <laughs> yeah. I, um, first Life is, is just crazy. <laughs> that's the conversation I've had. With, life? <laughs> that, that is exactly the conversation I've had with Phil a couple of times. Phil does, he has a Second Life avatar. He's done it. I haven't even, I haven't even tried to log on. I, uh, you know, I, I, I've told Phil, you know, between my you know day job and and trying to write every now and then for the blog and uh, and, and of course now fast forward radio and everything else and and in my family and you know small things like that you know um, I, I'm I'm pretty full uh, my play is pretty full but uh, he assures me that it's pretty cool and uh, I'll to check it out sometime so I well I, I give a lot of credit to Phil because. You know, uh, again, Ben and I like to joke that Second Life right now is like the Wild West frontier. There are no laws. There's no there, there are no marshals. <laughs> yeah. It's it's all pretty crazy out there. And you know, I think if this was the 19th century, I'd still be in Boston waiting for the Opera House, and then I'd know it was time that I could I could go across to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. It pretty much wouldn't stop until I got there. <laughs> Yeah, it was flyover country before there were airplanes. Uh, pretty much, uh, it was. <laughs> you would come straight to straight to California. Straight, straight to California, and it, but only when you know they had they had set up their their culture and and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm halfway in between. I'm I'm, I'm when it comes to things like uh, uh, settling the wilderness, I, I'm probably not the. Not the guy to come to, but uh, <laughs> at the same time, I, I, I enjoy a libertarian point of view in life. So, oh well. <laughs> but you're right. Um, one thing we want, while we're waiting on uh, Ben to give us a call, I, I wanted to get into a, a interview, or at least a piece of an interview that was uh, taken at the AGI conference. Now, this is the, the conference that um, that this this was set up basically by Ben Gertzel. I believe he was one of the uh, one of the people that set up this conference, and it was a three-day conference. I understand it took place like a week ago um, at the University of Memphis, and it was not just you know it was entrepreneurs, it was um, it was the scientists, um, you know, but it was also futurists, people like you and I that you know that think about these things, and um, and so one of the, one of the people that did show up was Hugo uh, Degaris. De Garris. De Garris, okay. Yes. And um, he is he's an interesting guy because he's involved in setting up a uh, um, uh, working on a project in China. 
and uh, it's artificial general intelligence. And so I'm, I'm going to uh, play, play a piece of audio that I got uh, of an interview with him at that conference. Uh, I'm Hugo de Garris, and um, I'm director of a research project called China Brain. And the basic idea is to build an artificial brain. And obviously, I'm doing it in China, in a city called Xiamen, Xiamen University. It's a 3 million RMB, so in Chinese purchasing power terms, that's about the same as a $3 million project, four years. And the basic aim is to evolve about 15,000 little neural networks. And each little neural network module has its own little job. It's sort of like Minsky's idea of society of mind, where, where you have these small, dumb agents, and you put enough of them together and connect them up in interesting ways, and you get, a, hopefully, an intelligent machine. So I'm trying to see what I can do in four years by putting about 15,000 things go well, maybe even 50,000 of these evolved modules together, and get them to control probably hundreds of different behaviors in a robot with thousands of pattern recognizers, circuits. So basically the idea is to try and ask the question, what, what can you do if you had so many modules, each one with its own little function, and you put them together and hopefully get uh, an, an artificial brain. So that would be, so, so this artificial brain would be the first in China, and I suppose in a certain sense, maybe even the first in the world. So we'll see, well, let's see, what are we now? Beginning 2008, so at the end of 2012, hold on, 19, sorry, 2011. <laughs> we'll see where we are. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting that you had just mentioned Google a little while ago, um, PJ. Um, what he's describing, using basically dumb agents and putting enough of them together and seeing what interesting thing happens above and beyond, you know, the, 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 the sum is greater than the, than the parts, you know. Um, you know, there's some who have, have said that, you know, this, this may happen with Google or some, or, or some uh, search engine like that, you know. Right, the idea of an emergent intelligence. Exactly, becoming right. more than, you know, than, than, the, you know, than the parts. Well, I mean, and, and the parts are pretty cool now anyway. You know, we've, we've laughed in the past about how uh, Google allows us to be smarter than we, you know, than we've said we are. Um, I think we may have our. We I think we may have been on. Let me see. Hello, this is Stephen Gordon. Hi, this is Ben Gertzel. Hi, 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 Dr. Gertzel. How are you this evening? Pretty good. Well, good, good. I hope we didn't have you on hold very long. Ah, uh, no, it was quite brief actually. Sorry, I called in a little late. Oh, no problem at all. No problem at all. Um, we were uh, we had just played uh, audio of, uh, of Hugo de, de, de Garis or Degree. <laughs> I'm pronouncing his name wrong, I believe. De Garis. Hugo de Garis. De thank you. PJ uh, corrected me as well. It's Hugo de Garis, um, and uh, and his project uh, in China and how how he's basically putting together uh, um, you know n n nodes to create something greater than the uh, than the parts. Um, is is that similar to what y'all are uh, uh, doing at Novamente, or are y'all going a different route to artificial intelligence? I would say that the long-term goals are similar, but the strategies and tactics being taken are completely different. Hugo is really trying to emulate the way the human brain functions, whereas in Novamente, 
what we're doing is much more loosely connected with human neuroscience and human cognition. We're trying to make a system that's generally intelligent in the same sense that the brain is, but we're trying to do it using uh, computer science methods rather than simulating neuroscience. Uh, Dr. Gershaw, I apologize. I didn't mention that I've also got on the line with me P.J. Manny. I believe that you all know each other. Hello, Ben. We do. How are you doing? All right. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good. All right. Well, and, and so basically the, the, uh, the, the route that you all are taking uh, is to, to go with what works, not necessarily what is what the human brain has done. It, you're, you're, using, you're doing a more pragmatic approach, I guess. I would say... Going with what works is optimistic in the sense that none of us have gotten human-level AI to work yet. Uh, we hope and believe that we will, but all of this is uh, speculative at, at this point. But I think the, the bigger distinction to me is going with what we understand. Neuroscience is still at a fairly primitive state, and we really don't know what's happening inside our brains when we think. I'm... I'm confident that within the next few decades we're going to find out. But right now we know a lot about computer science. We know a lot about learning, about memory, about reasoning. And what I believe is that we can piece together our knowledge from these various areas of computer science and AI and make a thinking machine without waiting for the neuroscientists to map out how the brain works. And the other thing is, Creating an artificial human is not the most interesting thing to me. I mean, we've we got a lot of humans already. and uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what is the most interesting thing to you? Well, that, that, that's a hard question, but I, I think that more, more interesting than making an artificial human certainly is making an artificial mind that goes beyond what's human, that's more intelligent than us, more rational than us, with more capability to feel and experience and grow than we have. I think that uh, human beings, whether digital or biological, are not likely to get the human race out of the problem that it's found itself in today. I think creating a creating a better kind of mind is uh, is really the the best hope we have of moving from where we are now to creating a, a future that's really a good one for everyone. Well, of course, the key is to make sure that that mind is friendly. If it's going to be, if it's going to surpass us, especially. Uh, yes, and of course, the definition of friendly in this context is uh, not terribly clear at this point either. I think that that's one of the things we're going to need to. Uh, discover as we move down the path we're going along. What kind of, of qualities do you feel are part of a friendly AGI? Well, if you look at the development of ethics in human beings, there's a couple different schools of thought. There's one theory uh, from a guy named Kohlberg, which is all about the evolution of uh, fairness and the, the notion of justice, which in human beings develops further and further as the rational mind develops more and more. So once we learn to reason abstractly, in general, then we can reason better about what's fair and uh, what's just. And I think it's, it's reasonable to think that an AI that was much more intelligent 
than humans would have a more refined and more capable sense of justice and fairness than we have. On the other hand, there's, there's an alternate theory put forth by Carl Gilligan, which is about sort of the ethics of compassion. And it's about the ability to, in a sense, feel what the other person is feeling and to care about it, in a sense, as if it was happening to ourselves. Empathy, my favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's something that, just as much as the ethics of uh, fairness, really needs to be architected in, into an AI system. So the one of the distinguishing things of the AI system that I'm working on, Novamente, is that we have an integrative design. So we integrate a lot of different approaches into a common framework and try to get intelligence to emerge from putting all these different approaches together. Now, one of the approaches is logical reasoning. Another approach is simulation. And in terms of ethics, I think logical reasoning is key to giving an AI a proper sense of fairness and justice, whereas simulation, the ability to internally simulate other minds is critical to giving an AI a, a sense of compassion. So one, mm-hmm. one would hope that by integrating these faculties together, one can get an AI system that has a powerful sense of uh, ethics, potentially much more so than human beings do. Because human Be human more human empathetic. Yeah, I mean, we, there's a limit to how well we can simulate someone else and feel what someone else is feeling. And AI may be able to better emulate humans internally than a human is able to emulate another human internally. Right. So then the AI, the AI could actually have a deeper and more thoroughgoing sense of compassion than human beings do. Well, I, I certainly hope you're, you're correct on that. One, looking back on history, one of the most disturbing things about, say, the Nazis is how, you know, uh, how advanced they were, and yet how evil they were. And I guess, they, in a sense, that they were just turning off any sense of compassion or empathy towards someone, uh, towards groups of people that they saw as other. And um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad to hear that uh, uh, that empathy is a big part of what you're looking at. Well, humans have a lot of evolutionary wiring, so to speak, and some of that is is quite uh, negative in character, such as the example you mentioned of our, our tribal nature. So we're really wired to have a lot of compassion for those within our tribe, Right. however we define that, and not so much compassion to those outside the tribe. On the other hand, it's also pretty clear that we have some inbuilt wiring for altruism, beyond what a purely logical, self-serving mind would have. So I think our our inbuilt wiring pushes us in uh, all different directions at once, which is what makes human society the, the, the crazy place it is. We don't need to replicate any of that evolutionary wiring inside an AI system. We can set things up quite differently. The key is just understanding what we're doing. Uh, Gandhi, not Hitler. You know, is what obviously what you you would be pushing towards, yeah. Um, all right, I I wanted to ask you, um, what, it, what when do you think that we would see true AGI? And, and 
I guess human level AGI is what I'm asking because you, you uh, Novamente may have already accomplished some form of AGI less than human. Um, well, I think uh, I would be a fool to give a specific date for the achievement of human level AGI since these these kinds of mistakes have been made in the history of AI so many times before. I mean, I know in the in the late 60s, uh, when I was born, people were saying in a few years they'd have human-level AI, and it didn't yeah. happen. And if, if you look at it a different way, Microsoft cannot even predict how long it's going to take to release Windows Vista or something like that. You know, <laughs> I mean, my, my kids have just been going nuts over a Nintendo game, which was released six months late. So if, if we can't even figure out how long it takes to release a video game, which has no research component. It's just engineering, according to well-known ideas. Of course, the time to an AGI is, uh, is, is hard to predict. But I, I do, I feel like uh, if somehow an AGI sugar daddy emerged, and, you know, AI, which is what we all want. <laughs> yeah, and AI research was really funded to the level that, for example, weapons research or medical research is funded now. If you had that kind of money pouring into AGI, I'd be really surprised if we didn't have a human-level AI within a decade, say, and potentially even sooner, potentially five years or something like that. I, I, wow. don't, think, I don't think any radical new ideas are needed, but I do think a heck of a lot of work remains, and if if work continues at the pace it's going right now, it could well be a few decades before we get there. Okay. On the other hand, there's all kinds of exponential growth processes going on, right? So it's it's never fair to assume things will continue at the pace they are right now because all all sorts of things are, are speeding up. You've got Moore's Law, and you do have more and more resources going into AGI research each year, even if it's nowhere near the level at, at which I'd like to see it. And I was pretty pleasantly surprised by the reception the AGI 08 conference got, the conference we held last weekend at University of Memphis, because five years ago you never could have pulled that many AI researchers into one place to talk about building a thinking machine. And... Today well, what was the attendance, uh, Dr. Gersel? Something like 130 people. Yeah. I, I don't know what the count was. We, we originally thought we'd get about 80. And it's not just the number of people, but it, it's the fact that probably half the people were AI PhD researchers from universities and, and corporate labs. So it, it wasn't just a matter of a bunch of fringy futurists. AGI, AGI techno nerd free types. Well, and you you had so, you had a few folks like that, a few futurists and things like that. But you you had a lot of scientists though, didn't you? Yeah, in fact, that was an interesting combination. I mean, that, that uh, I think with, with only uh, academic scientists, you, you don't get the same uh, buzz and animation in, in the conversations as, as when it's uh, mixed up a little. So I mean, we had. We had a bunch of academics, we had industry people, we had, had people from various government agencies. We also had some uh, musicians and writers and just AGI uh, enthusiast amateurs, neuroscientists, philosophers, and so forth. So it was, a, was, there it was one, definitely a lot of fun. 
Was there one particular conversation that uh, stands out in your mind that was particularly lively? Well, uh, there might have been many, too many to pick one. There is, of course, a lot of uh, personal bias here because the, the ones I found most interesting were probably the ones that relate most closely to the the things that I'm I'm thinking about myself. But I, I'd say that of all the sessions in the conference, the one that excited the non-technical people most was the session on AI and virtual worlds. I partly just because in that session everyone who gave a talk showed a movie and uh, people color like, and motion well, color and motion gets us every time. Yeah, <laughs> people like little, little animated characters moving around doing stuff. So I mean, I I gave a talk on our work training uh, virtual dogs in virtual worlds to learn an unlimited variety of uh, new tricks. Then Selmer brings Jord and his colleagues from RPI give a demo in Second Life of an AI that controls an avatar with theory of mind. So they have an avatar that tries to understand the intentions of another avatar. So wow. avatar one guesses what avatar two is thinking about what avatar three is thinking and so on. So that, that was kind of cool. Then there was another talk in that session, uh, which is more video game oriented, but people trying to make non-player characters in games that can really plan ahead and make complex multi-step plans to achieve their goals unlike the non-player characters in most contemporary games that are pretty transparent in, in their strategies and are, are really making novel plans about what to do. So I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that was the most exciting stuff at the conference, just on a purely scientific basis, but I think it was, uh, it was clear from the reception that that stuff got that this is one avenue that is going to be pretty viable for getting funding and enthusiasm into AGI research, just because it gives you witty demos to show off, and it's a it's a vibrant, rapidly growing business market, gaming, which has a genuine use for smarter and smarter AGI. Well, I understand the uh, the conference went very well, and uh, and the audience was enthusiastic about there being another conference next year. That's right. We uh, are tentatively planning to do AGI-09 in Washington, D.C., which we think can uh, get an even bigger crowd, being more uh, centrally located. And we also in intend to uh, invite people from all the government agencies who are located here, hoping to kind of spread the enthusiasm about AGI through, uh, through the powers that be. And we've We've also been talking about doing one or two uh, workshops with a smaller group of researchers between now and uh, AGI09. I think one of the one of the other things that's a little more mundane but really interesting scientifically to come out of the AGI08 conference was that a lot of researchers giving presentations on their approaches to AGI got the feeling there was a lot of commonality between what everyone was doing, yet different people were presenting different ideas, kind of expressed in, in different languages and using different terminologies and different formalisms. So it, it seemed clear that just getting people together in depth to really understand what each other is doing could help the field make a lot of progress because 
it seemed like there were five or six groups, including my own, who were doing things that kind of overlapped by 50%. And we didn't really realize that and didn't really understand in detail what each other are doing. And I think that's that's a risk of not copying the brain, right? If, if you're copying the brain to make an AI, everyone's at least doing the same thing. You're trying to invent a mind. Everyone's just pulling out of their own imagination based on the integrating knowledge from computer science, philosophy, cognitive science, neuroscience, and so on. So you kind okay. of have a feel where everyone's running it in their own direction. And I think these these kind of conferences can be really important in terms of pulling people together to kind of think in a more unified way. There has to be an advantage to feeling like you're also not reinventing, the, that each person isn't reinventing the wheel on their own. Yeah, I mean, there's a balance, right? Because you don't want conformity. And it's great right. to have people just wildly throwing out wacky ideas in every direction. I wouldn't actually want everyone to work on one system, even if it was mine, because I think it's it's great to have people generating all sorts of different ideas. But it's it's nice if there's enough of a common vocabulary and understanding that people can at least understand each other's uh, crazy ideas, which is... <laughs> <laughs> it's only it's only marginally the case in AGI now because really every researcher or every little cluster of researchers just invents their own language for talking about uh, computational cognition. Well, and, and this is I guess uh, in part because um, so much of the uh, most exciting work is taking place behind closed doors um, in various private companies like Novamente. I mean, that's is that fair to say? I think there's an awful lot of cool stuff going on in academia as well. And it, I think part of the problem is that cool stuff is going on behind closed doors. Part of the problem is that if you're an academic, it's not really fashionable to say you're working on building a thinking machine. Yeah. You, say, you say, well, we're, we're working on an integrative cognitive architecture. We're working on a paraconsistent logic system. And then since everyone frames what they're doing in a different vocabulary, partly so as not to appear too radical to their uh, funding sources, then it's actually not obvious that people are working on a lot of the same issues. And it's not obvious to the general public how interesting and far-reaching some of this stuff is, because it's kind of intentionally phrased in, in a low-key way, so as not to ruffle any feathers. Whereas in in industry, we're allowed to come right out there and, and say, yeah, you know, we're we're trying to make an AGI. If I was an academic, I could actually lose my funding if I went around saying that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting. There's a very similar uh, dynamic in play uh, with life extension. Um, there are, yeah, that, that, that's right. You can work on anti-aging, but you, yeah. can, you can't work on uh, life extension. So. That's right. You can work on making life less short, but not on making it more long. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a funny thing. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, And in in, uh, conversing with those that are uh, gung-ho and are maybe the radicals, uh, they they get infuriated by that. But at the same time, I'm going, well, guys, I I wonder how, how big of a deal it would be if they called it the other thing. You know, I mean, how, how, aren't we getting getting progress, you know, uh, just by another name? Well, well, that's only that's, partly true. I think a, a subset of life extension work can be kind of cast as 
anti-aging work, there's work at defeating aging-related diseases and so forth. But there's there's some life extension work that you really can't call by any other name. And I think uh, Aubrey de Grey has done a great job of, of pointing that out and, it, and highlighting what some of that work is. And I'd, That's I'd exactly what he said when he set me straight. <laughs> 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 he set me straight on that. Yes, some, sometimes you just have to call it what it is. The same thing is true in, in AGI. I mean, a lot of the work on AGI can be done under different names by academics who are kind of playing the game. But if, if we're really going to make a thinking machine, the job of kind of integrating all the parts together and making something that walks around, talks to you, asks you what it is and why it's there and why you created it, I mean, this it, it's, it's hard to cover that up on, under some other name. So I think the, the life extension and AGI situations are kind of similar. Maybe the low-key approach can get you 75% of the way there, but the the really core parts of it have, have, have got to be done without pretending you're doing something else. Well, just in visiting with you, I, I have the feeling that uh, AGI is further along than life extension, uh, primarily because there are companies out there that are saying that, yes, we're going for AGI. Where's well, the the resources required to do AI research are less. I think to do an AI company or an AI project, you need some smart people and some uh, laptops, you know? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we may need to use a whole bunch of machines on the Amazon's compute cloud or somewhere to run a human-level thinking machine. But to do most of the development work, all you need is money to pay people or enough of a compelling vision to convince people to work for free. Whereas to, to do the kind of biology research work that's needed to really move life extension research ahead, you just need a lot of expensive laboratory equipment and materials. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I mean, that's a bottleneck. Because I've done some work in, in life extension research as well, applying some of our AI technology to biological data pertaining to Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and calorie restriction. And what we find is we can analyze people's data that they put on the web, biological scientist data they post it online, and we throw that data in our AI algorithms. We learn a lot of interesting stuff. We can find out genes and pathways that are involved in aging-related disease and calorie restriction-based life extension, stuff that was never known before. But then the next step would be get some mice, perform some knockout experiments. I mean, that all is is way beyond our budget. So in terms of life extension, where we're at is we made a lot of cool discoveries applying AI to data, and we don't have funding to follow them up in the in the wet lab. I mean, we, we have biologists on staff who could do it, but it just... It takes more money than doing AI work, and I think that's the that's the same state a lot of uh, life extension visionaries are at. You know, AGI funding is a struggle too, and we're proceeding at like one fifth or one tenth the pace that we could if we were fully funded. But it's uh, nevertheless, think- nevertheless, it's way easier than uh, than in the case of uh, of life extension, where you just need expensive machinery. Do you feel that conferences like AGI-08 will help in that regard? I think they may. Over the next few years, we may be able to use these kinds of conferences to 
set processes going that that, that will help. So let, let's say uh, this conference went pretty well. We had 130-something people and a number of government and industry people. 2006, we had a workshop with 40 people, which is pretty much just half researchers, half uh, futurist enthusiasts. So let's say next year we do a bigger conference in Washington. We have people from all the funding agencies represented. We sort of build more enthusiasm for AGI and solidify the reputation of AGI as not being completely insane and out there. <laughs> then, mm-hmm. I, I mean, only, only partially insane and out there. <laughs> yeah. Then, I mean, you can see how in a couple of years after that, this could certainly lead to more funding avenues being opened up. It's just a, it's a painfully slow process changing the way a scientific culture works uh, as opposed to just sitting down and uh, writing the AGI code. So for me, it's always a question, like, do I, do I put time into actually building the thinking machine personally, even though we'd go faster with more funding? Or do I put time in trying to build community and, you know, convince the relevant parts of society that AGI is worth pushing along? Well, you you you've done both, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying I'm trying to do both, which is uh, both uh, kind of as someone said to me once that uh, in general, a person's uh, strengths are, are their weaknesses, you know. So I'm, that's very true. I, I'm I'm good at juggling an endless number of things at, at one time, and I'm always left wondering whether I should be just focusing on one thing instead. Well, did you find that uh, people at the conference were surprised at how far AGI has come, or research into it has come? Uh, is that the... Uh, I would say there was not the case that people were surprised at the practical achievements that, that have been made so far. It's not like there were a lot of uh, amazing demos being shown or anything. It was more like people were surprised at the the depth and breadth of thinking into the topic that, that was going on, including by many researchers who weren't in the habit of openly admitting they were thinking about this sort of thing. Surprised at the level of commonality of thinking among different researchers who hadn't really been paying attention to each other's stuff. So there's, there was definitely a sense that we're poised to begin a period of, of dramatic progress more so than than the sense that, you know, there's so much progress that has been made already, and it's just a matter of showing the world what we've done so far. Well, it sounds like you really need to get people to come out of the closet. Yeah, and I, I think that's uh, it's kind of a momentum-building thing. You know, we got a lot of that done with this conference, and hopefully it can be more and more so each year. I mean, the the process is happening already. All, all we're doing is hopefully accelerating it. Because in the last four or five years, within the AAAI, which is the main AI organization in the world, and the WCCI, World Conference on Computational Intelligence, within these fairly mainstream AI organizations, you've had workshops and special sessions on making human-level AI, which you never had before five years ago. So there's there's been an in- increasing amount of uh, coming out of the closet over the last few years, 
it's going to happen whether or not I do anything about it. But I'm hoping that by my efforts I can uh, accelerate things a bit, make the process move a little faster. Uh, we are talking with Ben Gertzel. Our telephone number is 347-215-8972. If, if we have anybody in the audience that would like to call in and ask a question, we'll be visiting with him, I guess, a few more minutes. Um, any rate, I, I hope that we will have a call or two before uh, we we have to go. Is have you ever had a system surprise you uh, with something that it did that was beyond what you thought? It was beyond where where you thought you were at the time. Yeah, usually 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 the, it's the other way around. Of course, you get, you get a a software bug, and you can't imagine after so much work. You could have something behaving so retardedly. But okay. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally the the opposite will happen. Yeah. Let me let me, uh, let me think a minute to see what's uh, what's the most interesting. While you while you think on that, I'm going to take this call. Hang on one second. Let's see if we can get them all. Hello, this is Fast Forward Radio. Hey, Stephen. This is Michael Darwin. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I've got a question for your our guest. Okay, great. Um, ben, uh, Michael Darling has been a co-host for us uh, and here at the Fast Forward Radio, and so I know that whatever question he has is going to be a good one. So <laughs> go ahead, shoot, Mike. Um, Dr. Gertz, you were talking about uh, the moment would come where we would have the uh, – uh, an opportunity to show more of what this would look like, what AGI would look like. And my question is, what would that showing look like? Is it a demo of a singing, walking, talking robot? Is it a, uh, a, a program full of code that programmers can look at and go, oh, I see what's going on here? I mean, what, is, what does that demonstration look like? Well, I think there can be many different past AGI, which could come along with many different demonstrations. What what I'm working toward in my own project is essentially a, a demonstration of language learning in a virtually embodied context. So I'd, I'd like to make a, a talking parrot that learns to talk better and better as people talk to it. The talking parrot would be a kind of animated parrot in a virtual world that would talk with people's avatars. And uh, the key point is it's not a chatbot. It understands language to some extent, and it understands more and more as you communicate with it more and more. I think could, it pa- could it pass a Turing test? A parrot cannot pass a Turing test. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think uh, ultimately, of course, we would like to make a machine that can pass the Turing test, but that's... That's not a very original or interesting uh, observation. I guess the the harder thing is to come up with intermediary milestones that are interesting. I think the, uh, and, and that that are impressive, but that are also like palpably on the way to AGI, and you can do them before you have a full human level thinking machine. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, maybe it should be a pirate test. Uh, if a pirate yeah, can't yeah. tell between the difference between your system and a real parrot, then you know, <laughs> yeah. then you've accomplished something. Anyway, uh, uh, oh, an, an example came to mind for your previous question. Okay, uh, great. 
This was from a, an earlier prototype system I, I was playing with, which was, this was something uh, with embodied agents in a simulation world. And it was with uh, basically trying to make the a virtual animal play fetch, which is a simple thing. So you taught it that you throw the stick, it picks it up and brings it back. Throw the rock, it picks it up and brings it back. Then you ask it to go get another avatar and get the other avatar to come to you. Now, what's the approach? You can go to the other avatar and bark and make a noise. You can go to the other avatar and, like, ram its head against it and, and try to push it. Now, what happened that was funny is in, in one version of the system, it went to another avatar that was small. It was like a, a short avatar. and actually tried to pick it up. So it's, it's like a generalization, right? It figured, well, you can pick up a rock and a stick. I can't pick up a big, tall guy. Maybe I can pick up a little guy with my mouth and carry it like a stick. And it, it failed to do that, but that's a funny instance of generalization anyway, because we, we didn't program that kind of rule into it. It's just saying, well, I can pick up some small things. Maybe I can pick up this other small thing. <laughs> now, I've seen demonstrations of yours where you have virtual children learning how to replicate actions yeah imitative learning that, that that's right i think uh what we're dealing with now with our virtual agents and virtual worlds is three kinds of learning one of which is reinforcement where you kind of reward or correct it depending on how well it did then there's imitative learning you act something out and the ai makes its body act out the same thing and you can tell it how well it did. Then there's what we call corrective learning, which is, for example, if you want your dog to sit, you push its butt down on the ground. And these three kinds of learning put together, reinforcement, imitation, and correction, seem to be critical to how young children learn. And I think they they can be used to help an AI build up an understanding of how to interact with the world and with other agents using its body. And my view of language learning in AIs is that it's going to go best if it comes out of gestural communication and physical interaction with the world rather than just trying to teach the AI language kind of in a vacuum, like in a typical chatbot context. I mean, if, it, it little, really little, makes sense. Little kids, little kids really learn language that way. You know, they make sounds, they make gestures, and so forth, and it kind of continuously morphs into being language. Well, especially since language within a purely verbal context is so easily misunderstood until you learn all of the subtle rules. And you're right, those subtle rules are taught through behavior, gesture, uh, physicality, as opposed to simply... A verbal ability. Yeah, that's right. I mean, almost all the problems that are faced in computational linguistics today have to do with the inability of our computer science algorithms to understand context. So a given sentence may have a hundred different meanings, depending on how you interpret it. 
we're pretty good now at making AI algorithms that can take in a sentence and spit out a hundred different possible meanings for the sentence. We're pretty bad at making algorithms that will tell you which of those hundred meanings really applies in a given situation. And how do we humans get that? I mean, when we're little kids, we get it from tone of voice, we get it from gesture, we get it from seeing what's in the world around us. That's right. Now, eventually, as we grow up, we have enough generalized understanding that we can kind of fill in the gaps and do without those cues. But in, in the beginning, we have a lot of scaffolding to kind of prop up our, our limited language understanding. And that's, that's what I think is most likely the best way to teach an AI language as well. Is, is that why you're interested in Second Life? Uh, it provides a, the scaffolding you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at a number of kinds of, of scaffolding, actually. I think we're, we're interested in virtual worlds because they provide a way to give AIs social and embodied experience without the expense and technological hardship that's involved in dealing with physical robots. On the other hand, it's, it's also, I think, a very attractive avenue from a business perspective. Not necessarily Second Life in particular, but virtual worlds and uh, online games in general. Okay. Um, I, I, it's, it, I had an interesting conversation. Uh, well, it was an online conversation uh, about a year or so ago. and It involved uh, the problem with trying to teach Helen Keller. Uh, she did not have, you know, obviously didn't, she didn't have hearing our, our sight. And so she's sort of left in this dark world where, and I mean, she had a perfectly fine, you know, mind. But breaking through to her took a lot of effort. Um, I guess that's, I guess that's the reason you would need to, if you're, you know, you would be so much farther ahead if you, if you are working within some sort of virtual world. Uh, rather than trying to, you know, having a brain in the dark with no ability to, to communicate or to, or to learn through vision or, or hearing. And it's interesting. She learned through touch. Yeah. So that was the there has to, there seems to be these over layers of different sensory perceptions that inform language, and bereft of of sight and um, hearing. She was able to use touch to fill that gap eventually, but of course with with a lot of help from Annie yeah, with Sullivan. monumental help. Yeah, with from from Annie Sullivan. But it, it's also worth noting that she did have vision until she was maybe a year old or something. That's right. That's right. I wonder if it uh, is. Uh, you, you probably know Ben. I mean, children that are born without born without sight or hearing are they are they are they are they lost? I mean, the, uh, well, you know, I I, I did. I did at a certain point research the uh, learning and cognitive development in blind babies. And, yeah. uh, there, there's books and papers written on this, and what you find is, you know, they, they learn everything they need to eventually, in spite of being blind, but some things come a lot slower. For example, object uh, permanence. Like a human baby learns, or not human baby, sorry, a sighted baby. Yeah. A sighted human baby learns that when an object disappears, 
and comes back, it's still there, and it's still the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, blind babies take a lot longer to learn that because something goes away from them and they don't see it until it's touching them again in most cases. And, and so it just takes them a lot longer. That they don't have benefit of the peekaboo game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when their mother goes away, their mother is gone. They just vanish. You don't get to see her across the room. You don't see her receding and then coming back. I mean, you you miss a lot, but yet, you know, they, they still pass through all the stages of uh, cognitive development, and they're able to do just as advanced reading as reading, learning, thinking, understanding, communicating as, as anybody else. So I would say that the lesson from there is it does not stop you from uh, becoming an intelligent system. On the other hand, it's also true that even blind babies have a visual cortex that's largely intact. So they, they have structures that evolve for processing vision. But interestingly, they, they often get shanghaied for other sensory um, uh, input. So for instance, they've discovered that when they t- use their fingers, the, the area that's actually being stimulated is often the visual cortex. Yeah, that's right. Now, one of the things that interests me in terms of kind of advancing virtual world technology is to give your avatars in the virtual world a sense of touch. There's a lot of focus on vision in virtual worlds and gaming. And right now, with the way the infrastructure works in games and virtual worlds, it's hard to get good, like, virtual tactile data you know like your your avatar doesn't feel the the air blowing on its uh, skin and the different textures don't feel different to it there's not really a, a mechanism for kinesthesia of the the skeleton of the avatar feeling its body doing stuff and that I don't think that's extremely hard to do but I think that's Would you I have would be localized within the avatar, or would it be something that could be translated to a virtual reality suit, for instance? You know, I think of the gloves and the, and the body suits and things like that. Well, if, you, if you're talking about an AI-controlled avatar, then really what I'm talking about is just the mechanics of how is the avatar, right, okay. how is the avatar represented in the virtual world, and how, what kind of data does the virtual world give to the AI system about what the avatar is doing? Well, right, I, right now, like, if you look in Second Life, Textures, so to speak, are just like colored pictures, basically. Yeah. There, there really is no texture. And if, if you wanted to simulate, like, mopping your kitchen floor in, in Second Life, you couldn't do it because there, there, there's no sticky stuff. There's no, <laughs> you know, there's no dog hair lying all over the place. It's all just smooth. And there's, in terms of just knowing what it is to be yourself and I- experiencing the boundary between yourself and the outside world. As a human being, it really helps to have all this variety of tactile sensations. Well, at the risk of not being a family show anymore, I I think that uh, (laughs) there's a certain industry out in California that uh, might come to your rescue on that. Yeah, Uh, I'm surprised Second Life hasn't gone in that direction already, actually, given the, the culture of Second Life. Now, PJ, I think what you mentioned about suits to give a kind of tactile uh, experience and better motor control of avatars. I think that's important, and uh, that that will certainly come just because it will give a better gaming experience. But I don't think we're 
I think we're reliant on that for AGI, but I, I do think that having having a better kind of virtual sense of touch for our AI agents in the virtual world is going to be important. Like right right now, if you made a virtual parrot fly in Second Life, given the way Second Life's physics works, it wouldn't feel the wind underneath its wings, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything feels its wind. The wind underneath its wings when it yeah. flies. <laughs> There's nothing to feel there yet. That data is just not being uh, is just not there, is it? Yeah, in Second Life, the data is not there. Now they're they're integrating a, a new physics engine in a, a couple months, which is an improvement, but it probably won't quite get you there yet. And I, you know, th- this is one of the unknown questions in the use of virtual worlds for AI. Is like, a, how sophisticated does the virtual world need to be to supply enough sensory motor richness? to really help uh, a mind grow in the same way that the physical world does. And I think different researchers are of different minds about this. I know Sibley Verbeck, who's the CEO of Electric Sheep Company, which is the biggest Second Life development company out there, he he was at the AGI Awake conference chairing the session on virtual worlds. And his view is that what we have now is enough. You know, what, what he thinks is that the key thing is social interaction, linguistic interaction, and yeah, it's important to be able to see what you're talking about, to know that when you're saying, you know, get me that box over there, go kick him, you can see him, you can see your foot, you can see the box, but he doesn't think a really fine-grained perceptual and motor infrastructure is needed. On the other hand, some other people who are more working on robotics, they really think you need really complex percepts and complex motor control of all your joints and so forth. And that out of this richness of perception and motor control, out of this is what the mind learns to recognize as complex patterns. And then we use that pattern recognition ability in cognitive and social and other domains. And I'd, I'd say I, I tend a little closer towards Sibley's view that we don't really need all that richness, although it's useful, but no, none of us really knows. But the, the good news is, you know, the gaming industry is advancing really fast. So I, I have a lot of faith that uh, physics engines and realism of virtual worlds is going to keep exploding uh, exponentially as it has been. Uh, does that mean with the new physics engine that people won't be able to fly anymore? <laughs> How close to real-world physics is it ever going to get? <laughs> that depends on the game, actually. I think okay. Their collision detection is getting better. Like, now in, in Second Life, now and then you, like, move your arm through a wall. You're right. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that won't happen with the Havoc 4 physics engine because the uh, collision detection <laughs> is a lot better. Uh, we we have time just for one more caller, uh, uh, Doctor Gertz. So let me uh, let's let's take this call. Hello, th- uh, you're on Fast Forward Radio. Uh, hi, this is Matt doing. Uh, hi, Matt. How are you? Uh, good. This is a uh, question for Doctor Gertz. It's an honor to speak with you. I find your writings very interesting. I was wondering if there's any conceptual building blocks that are employed in AGI which would be accessible to an undergraduate student, and if there's any books in the field you recommend. Dr. Well, Gersel, I'm sorry, did you hear the question? 
pretty well. Ask if there are any conceptual building blocks of AGI that are uh, accessible to an undergraduate and what books you might recommend. Well, there's there's really no undergraduate textbook or anything like that for AGI. I mean, that was that was one thing that was mentioned at the AGI Awake conferences. Wouldn't it be nice if someone wrote an AGI await, rather an AGI textbook, which is as good as, say, Russell and Norvig's textbook on narrow AI. But no, no one volunteered to write such a book, however. Um, in terms of getting a sense of the scope of AGI work, I mean, there's the, there was a proceedings volume from the AGI await conference, and there was one from the AGI workshop we had in 2006. Those those are research papers by a bunch of people, but they certainly give you some sense of what what people are, are doing. I think the the thing is that AGI is really interdisciplinary, so to appreciate it, yeah, you want to know the stuff in uh, Russell and Norvig, which is the classic textbook on narrow AI. You also want to know the basics of uh, cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience. I mean... Michael Gazzaniga has the classic book, uh, Handbook of Cognitive Neurosciences. It's a, a big, fat uh, volume. It probably weighs 10 pounds. And it's not much uh, leisure reading, I guess. One, in terms of the language learning stuff we've been talking about a bit, there's a book, uh, Constructing a Language, by Michael Tomasello, which is not an AI book, but goes over really nicely how human children of construct language internally through social and physical interaction. But I guess the short answer is there's a load of conceptual building blocks and no really good elementary summary books on them at, at this point. Yeah, very much. All right. Um, well, I guess we, we really need to kind of wrap it up. Dr. Gersel, it's been uh, an honor to visit with you. I hope that uh, you'll, you'll uh, come back on the show sometime. It seems like we've got so much more we could talk about. Uh, yeah, this could go on for a long time. I mean, my, <laughs> yeah. my, my, my son just finished a 21-hour marathon playing a Smash Brothers Brawl video game. And I think <laughs> This conversation could probably go on at least that long, but I don't have as much, <laughs> I don't have as much stamina as uh, he does since I'm not uh, 14 anymore. <laughs> well, um, I hope he did good with his game. I, I, I assume he went that long. He has to be pretty good at it, right? Well, he, he got all the characters except one. And he finally, <laughs> decided to go to sleep. Well, he, he, uh, I'm sure he'd get along well with my 11-year-old who's, who loves that game as well. Well, this is just the, the virtual world encroaching on us, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Our kids uh, uh, are, are more into it even than, than we are. And they're, they're, they'll be ready to upload once the technology <laughs> <laughs> No doubt that's true. No doubt that's true. Well, thank All right. you. Well, th yeah, th thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it very much. We're going to exit tonight with some uh, uh, with some music from uh, the band called Cave Doll, and the, uh, and the song is called Mexico. We're going to have uh, show notes uh, posted at The Speculist. That's blog, www.blog.speculist.com. And I'm going to do my best to have links to all the, uh, all the things that we've talked about and uh, also a link to the hi-fi version of the song I'm about to play. 
PJ, it was a pleasure having you on the show again. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And, uh, and if we have any of our callers still on the line, I appreciate you all for, for calling in. I think, Michael, you're still there, right? Well, maybe not. Yeah, I'm here. I'm just listening. <laughs> there quietly. Well, we appreciate you calling in as well, and, court, uh, and of course, uh, Matt doing as well. And uh look forward to having Phil back next week. Thank you all very much. <laughs>